Hey, this is Rayko Zek, the pastor at St. Paul's. You're listening to Jesus in the Center, one year Bible podcast. I'm so glad you are. Today is number 17, day number 17. Today we're going to read Genesis 35 and 36, a little bit of Matthew 12, Psalm 15, and Proverbs chapter 3. There's a bunch here. Remember yesterday, if you listened, I said it's my goal to get shorter. And I didn't reach that goal yesterday, so today I'm going to try. All right, here we go. We're going to jump right in. In Genesis 34 yesterday, the whole story with Dinah, the daughter of Leah, uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, how she is raped by the the prince of the city, Shechem, that they're living in. Uh, he wants to keep her. The brothers, her brothers are like, yeah, it's a good plan. In fact, why don't you all get circumcised uh, so that we can really be united? And they take advantage of their pain. The third day uh, being circumcised, they come and slaughter them all. And how the the father, Jacob, he's not pleased with them, but he doesn't know what to do because, um, yes, they have defiled her. It's um, It was an outrageous thing that should not have been done. But he is afraid for the whole family. If we've made enemies with this city, what are the rest of the people around here, their kin, going to do to us? Well, they do stay there. It doesn't really say this, but from reading commentaries, it seems like they were there for about eight to ten years. And then chapter 35 starts, and God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Now when it says up, I think north, but it's really uphill to Bethel. And this is, so it's about 20 miles north. They pick up and they move there. God says, Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And this is the same place where in Genesis 28 he fell asleep and saw the stairway to heaven where God confirmed the the, his, the promises to Abraham and to his father Isaac. He says, go there. He says also, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. That's what Jacob says to his family. He knows they still have these gods. Likely when they ransacked Shechem and also what they he figured out that Rachel took from her home. They have gods. They have these foreign gods, these little idols. And so he he buries them. Why he, he hides them under the tree? Why does he not destroy them? I do not know. But he buries them. And interesting, verse 5, God has been faithful. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities. We'll see this again and again as the, the whole clan comes back from Egypt. So God protected. We see here again that God again reminds him that his name is Israel and it is not it is not Jacob. He has a new name. He has a new identity. Israel shall be your name, he says. And then he reminds him of this promise. This is sort of new. Verse 11, he says, And God said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. This promise of kings is a new promise to uh, to Jacob. It was not ever told to Isaac, but it was told to his grandfather Abraham, or Abram at that time, um, in Genesis 7, two different times there, 17 rather, Genesis 17. So kings, um, we'll see in the next chapter, remind me, haha, and I'll talk about the prophecy about kings in this hard chapter, the next chapter. Well anyway, then Isaac, uh, he goes there and to this place called Bethel, and the place where God had already been and met him there. God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Uh, so God had somehow visibly, somehow been there 
It's just astounding. God really wanted Israel or Jacob to to have faith so that he could bring the Redeemer to the world. And then Jacob responds with worship. He sets up this pillar. He, he pours out a drink offering on it. He pours oil on it. He is the priest and we could say the king, I guess, of his own clan. He calls the name of the place Bethel, house of God. As it goes on, three really uh, hard things happen to him in this next section. One good thing, his, he has another son. But his son, Benjamin, is born while his mother, Benjamin's mother, dies. Rachel dies. And so she's buried, not in the traditional burying place where everyone else will be buried, the, the place that Abraham purchased, but rather in Bethlehem. And so uh, she, she dies. And this is, this is a hard thing. Jacob loves her very much. Also, it says that, um, that his oldest son slept with his wife. It's called concubine here, but in chapter 30, Bilhah is also called his wife. Uh, it's weird. He's got four wives or two wives and two concubines. I don't know. Uh, they're interchanged with the names there. It's, it's, not, it's not ideal. Um, but Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. So that's another sorrow to add to his other sorrow. And then finally, his father Isaac dies. Beautiful words. He breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And thankfully, we can see that, that his brother Esau and, and Jacob together, they bury him. And so they're still reconciled. If you're keeping note, we think that Isaac died around 1885 BC. I can't verify that, but that's that's what some commentaries said. So chapter 36, if you got through it, this is the ninth list of generations in this uh, book of Genesis. The 10th will be the one that focuses on Isaac, which you think we've already been focusing on, but we'll focus on it more with his sons, Joseph and so on and Judah. But here... It focuses on Esau. It takes a little break. And if you read through this, wow, good for you. There's some 200 men and women, uh, sons and daughters of Esau, listed in this chapter. And it's hard. I just want to point out two things. One I already mentioned. Thank you for reminding me. In verse 31, there's this little eh, prophecy or something. It says this. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So there's this note that there will be kings to reign over uh, Israel, right? Just as was promised in the previous chapter, kings will come from you. And we know who that ultimate king is. By the way, God did not command them to have a king. Uh, they asked to have a king. We can read about this when we get to, uh, to Samuel, the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. But God had the prerogative. He kept the prerogative. If they demanded a king, that he would be the one to choose. So... Keep that in mind. That's a theme that will come up in the future. The other thing I want to mention, he, he chose wives from the Canaanites. He did not, like his brother, go back to uh, find those who, who knew Yahweh. We have no idea here that or Esau taught his family to know Yahweh, to know the one true God. Wives from the Canaanites almost ensures that his descendants would engage in false worship. Who you marry if they have faith or not, should be the, the, the biggest thing you consider when you're looking for a spouse. Do they know the Lord? Second Corinthians, I believe chapter 7, 6 and 7 maybe it is, uh, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he's not really talking about marriage there, but it definitely applies. You are yoked together with your spouse, and so we do not want to be unequally yoked. You want to, 
you're a Christian, marry a Christian. You can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah takes some pretty drastic measures when he sees how the children of Israel are marrying other tribes and their sons and daughters do not even know how to speak Hebrew, how to call in the name of Yahweh. Like I said, I'm going to try to be brief, so we're going to flip over to Matthew, and there's just a couple of things here. We see Jesus coming through the grain fields, and his disciples are gleaning some some heads of grain, and the Pharisees, who are really good out about pointing out other people's faults, they find fault with Jesus and his disciples. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus counters this Number one, you could glean grain from fields as you're walking through it. You can't harvest. You can't take out your sickle and then go and sell it. But you can glean with your fingers and eat what you need. That was definitely allowed in the law. But they figured that there's no no fire, no movement, no work allowed on the Sabbath. They took this to the extreme. And so they think that Jesus is violating this. So he, he counters and he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So in the temple or the tabernacle, there would be this, every Sabbath, there would be this grain offering where 12 loaves, and I need to learn about this, maybe it's symbolic of the 12 tribes, but 12 loaves of bread were given to the Lord as a thank offering. It wasn't a sacrifice. It was just, thanks be to God that you keep providing for us. And here's Here's a a thank offering. And only the priests were allowed to eat it. On a certain occasion, David and his men needed some food. And so the priests gave him, the priests gave them this bread of the presence. Interesting, by the way, beautiful phrase that I think maybe comes into the Lord's Supper, that the Lord is present in this offering, this, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Anyway, that's, that's another note. But then Jesus goes on and says this, Have you not read in the law? How on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. In other, this is something I learned today. Jesus says this, that priests have to work on the Sabbath. He's saying to the Pharisees, look, all work is not forbidden on the Sabbath. Some work must go on. The priests are some of those who are working on the Sabbath. Are they breaking the Sabbath? No, they are fulfilling the Sabbath by doing the work of the priests. And so Jesus is implying here that there is that he is the great high priest who can work on the Sabbath, right? And then he says this, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Woo! Them's fighting words. Something greater than the temple is here? What is Jesus saying? He is saying that the temple points to me, the one who would come and bring true Sabbath, true rest. Then he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's quoting Hosea, and this is the second time in, in this gospel where it's quoted, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is implying that he is God. Right? This is something we can look back at. Who else could say this than, uh, than God? And then as Lord of the Sabbath, uh, we have this episode where he is he's he going to heal a man with a withered hand. Uh, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he basically says, yeah. It is lawful to heal and to do good on the Sabbath because you all know this. You would go rescue your sheep out of the ditch, right? And so he says, stretch out your hand. And golly gee willikers, the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. Jesus speaks and what he says happens because he is Lord. 
Well, the Pharisees, why do they do this? They go out and they conspire against him how to destroy him. Ah, that's horrible. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed, and he healed them all. And then Matthew, in this beautiful citation, he quotes Isaiah 42, which you can look up. Isaiah 42, there's at least four or five what we call servant songs in Isaiah. This is the first one he quotes from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, or my son, could is translated in Greek, could be either one, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him. He'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Justice here in the sense of aid and help and relief. And I love this. A bruised reed he will not break. Are you a bruised reed in your spirit? A smoldering wick he will not quench. Wow. I love that. He does not give up on us, right? Think of Think of our story of Jacob. He so easily could have given up on Jacob. Instead, he transforms him and calls him Israel. It's beautiful. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Well, the drama continues in Matthew. We'll keep on reading there. We'll end today looking at Psalm 15. It's a Psalm of David. It's only five verses. It says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth. And it goes on, talks about being just in our ways with um, keeping our oath, being honest even when it hurts. So who can do these things? Remember our, our psalm yesterday, Psalm 14 says, there is none who is righteous, no one who does good. So who can do good? I think the only answer to this is the Lord of the Sabbath. Only Jesus is the one who does what is blameless, who does what is righteous. And then because of that, those of us are who are his disciples, who who, who, to whom he says, stretch out your hand, and it's stretched out and it's healed, who says to us, follow me, and before we know it, we're following him, because we've heard his word with faith. He's given us faith, and, and we start walking. So we get to dwell in God's sacred tent, which is also translated tabernacle, by the way. We may live on his holy mountain, right? Just like Isaac, I'm sorry, just like Jacob went up to Bethel, more uphill to this place, to this house of God and worship. So thanks be God we have to do that. God was faithful to Jacob and he's faithful to us. He comes to us who are bruised and who are smoldering. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and he comes to give us rest. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.